You're listening to the Bible uncut and unfiltered. We believe the Bible doesn't need to be watered down or cleaned up to be understood. Our goal is to provide a healing place to discuss the questions you can't ask and the context you won't learn in church. I'm your host, Colin Connor. Now, on to the episode. And welcome back to our Genesis series here at the Bible Uncut and Unfiltered. We've basically been going verse by verse through the first several chapters of Genesis. Right now we're about halfway through the second chapter. We've been doing this because Genesis is the starting point for the Bible story. Something that we have really tried to stress here is that the Bible is a whole narrative. It's intended to be read as a consistent story start to finish. And so we are beginning here at the very beginning in order to follow the biblical story from its starting point. We're trying to look at it with fresh eyes, like this is the first time that we've ever come to this story before. Genesis is often a battleground for a lot of people. It's not most people's favorite book of the Bible. They tend to go to it just when they have a point to prove or when they're starting through the Bible in the year plan. But we believe here that Genesis is one of the most important books in the Bible because not only does it begin the Bible story, but it also has a lot to say about us still today. Rachel Held Evans was known for saying that the Bible should be a conversation starter, not a conversation ender. And I really hope that is what you've been seeing so far in this Genesis series. I've been trying to give several different perspectives on different aspects of the text. And I know for people who are used to hearing maybe only one side of how to understand the Bible, it can be disorienting when you hear that there's actually all different kinds of debates on basically every single verse in the Bible, especially here at the start of Genesis. But I don't say all that to confuse or discourage anyone. I actually bring all this up in the hopes that it will encourage the people who have been pushed to the margins by Christians and by churches that are just trying to shove one way of understanding the Bible down your throat. It's natural to think that what you believe is the right way, and it's natural to want others to believe that as well, since you think it's right. That's fine, but where it can get harmful is when we don't listen to other perspectives, when we just stay within an echo chamber of one way of viewing really anything, and especially the Bible. So my goal with this, starting in Genesis series, has been to introduce you to different ways of viewing this text that aren't usually taught in church. And that's not because they're weird or wrong, but simply because the average pastor was not often trained in this kind of cultural understanding of the Bible. A lot of preaching colleges focus on specific aspects of ministry and how to run a church, and maybe some very basics of systematic theology, but they don't really get you into the culture of the Bible. And I think that has a massive effect on the way that the Bible is taught. So I hope that this has been a breath of fresh air for those of you who maybe had a little bit of a different view of the text or had some questions and just didn't feel like your views or your questions were welcome in your faith community. And you don't have to hold the views that I bring up here in the podcast. I am not trying to push one view over the other most of the time, but rather I hope that by sharing all of these different views, it encourages you to use the Bible as a conversation starter rather than a conversation ender. So let's get back into Genesis here. We left off at chapter 2, verse 15. So let's hop right back in. And Yahweh God took the human and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you should not eat of it. For in the day that you eat thereof you will surely die. All right, we're going to pause there. Remember, this is still the human that God is speaking of. I know a lot of translations will say the man, but there is no male and female yet in this text. It is just the human, the ha'adam, 
And most translations will say something about God's placing the human in the garden. But interestingly enough, the text literally reads that God caused the human to rest in the garden. The Hebrew word that is used for rest and that's often translated place is the verb noach. Now, that may sound familiar to you if you know the story of Genesis. It's the verb form of Noah's name. In Hebrew, you would pronounce Noah's name noach. It's almost like a K sound at the end. So God noached the human in the garden. And then in Genesis 9, when Noach finally gets Noach, or rest, from the flood, after the ark Noachs on a mountaintop, he plants a garden as well. So more of those hyperlinks that we've talked about that connect these biblical stories back and forth, and they encourage us to read and reread the stories in light of each other. Now that word that is often translated as to dress the garden or work the garden is the Hebrew word avad. Avad has several meanings. It can mean to work. But it can also mean to serve or to worship. As we read this passage, I think we're meant to have all three meanings in mind. Because the humans do work the garden, but they're also serving God in the garden. And they are worshiping God through their work in the garden. Especially when you consider the garden as being a temple. So I think by use of this versatile word where the author is intending for us to view the human's work as more than just standard gardening. In fact, that next word that is used, it's often translated keep, it means to guard. Now, these are two new roles for the humans to play. Previously, we were told of their responsibility to rule over the earth as a whole, but these commands are in regard to the garden specifically. Humanity was to toil there, to work there, and then also to guard the garden. The earth was their responsibility, and Eden was their headquarters. So the garden was like the meeting place of heaven and earth, and humanity was therefore supposed to guard this sacred space and work in it in order to make it even more beautiful. Likewise, the priests later on would be guarding the tabernacle and the temple from anything that wasn't permitted inside. See, not just anyone can enter sacred space. You have to have undergone the proper rituals before you would be allowed in the sacred space of the temple. And even then, you had to be of a specific priestly class and family. So I think that by using these words to work and to keep side by side, the author is trying to suggest to us that the man and the woman are going to be the priest and priestess of Eden. Now, those two words are only ever used together when describing the roles of the priests and Levites in the tabernacle and temple. So in other words, the ideal vocation for humanity includes the responsibilities that we associate with priesthood. And isn't it interesting then that when we fast forward into the New Testament times, Jesus and the New Testament writers are trying to get us to think of ourselves as a priesthood of intermediaries between humanity and God, where we try to bring God to other people and bring other people to God. So you have that aspect even here in the garden, which is really interesting. Now, let's pause for a second and talk about covenants. In the Bible, a covenant is a legal agreement. It's usually based on the idea of a suzerain-vassal treaty. A suzerain would have been a local ruler of a tribal group of people, and the vassal would have been a common person who was working for the suzerain. They would agree on a mutually beneficial contract where the vassal did something to benefit the suzerain, a lot of times giving a a large portion of perhaps whatever crops or animals that he had. And in return, the suzerain would provide protection when needed, or perhaps even the promise of food or shelter if it was ever needed. So the Bible covenants are between a suzerain, God, and a vassal, whoever the human is, where they're agreeing to work together. Now, these would be mutually exclusive contracts. You can kind of think of it in terms of wedding vows. In general, the idea of a wedding vow is that the couple is saying, we are committing to each other, no one else. 
And so that's why you have such exclusivity in the language that God often uses with his covenant people, because he's saying, you are in a relationship with me now. I'm expecting this to be exclusive. Or even there are some companies today where you might have to sign as part of your contract for working with them that you are only going to work for them at that period of time. That became popular during COVID when some people were working multiple jobs at one time from home all at the exact same time. But that's the idea of these biblical covenants. They are mutually beneficial, where God is providing something that the humans cannot provide, and the humans are repaying God by serving him alone. And there are several different covenants throughout scripture. People bicker over exactly how many there are, and with who, and what type. That's an entirely different episode for another day, not what we're trying to get into here. But some of the most common ones people will talk about are God's covenants with Noah, Abraham, Jacob, nation of Israel as a whole, King David, so forth and so on. And scholars argue over whether or not there was a covenant here in Eden. There is no specific covenant language. However, all of the elements of a standard covenant are present here. But I think there's actually some significance to be found in the fact that the Bible never specifically calls this a covenant. See, in this Eden paradise, God doesn't have to write out a contract with the humans. It's just an agreement that he has with them where he takes their word for it that they are going to serve him and him alone. It's kind of like how the prophets and then the New Testament writers describe the new covenant forged between Jesus and his followers, an intimate internal covenant that doesn't require all of the legal contracts usually drawn up. There are a lot of Christians who relate to God by how well they think they keep the rules that he has for them. But in this ideal of the garden, I think we have to note that God really only had a couple of rules. And really, you can boil it down to one, which is do the best thing for each other. Or, I guess in the words of Jesus, love God and love people, the two greatest commandments. The only real rule that the humans had was don't eat from the tree of knowing good and evil. And like we talked about previously, that tree symbolized their taking an independent stance from God. So really, the only law was do things God's way, (laughs) be loving to each other. Now, I don't want to make light of the instructions that are found in the Bible. There are several, and that's a whole other conversation for another day of what applies when and to whom. But I do think it's interesting that in this Eden ideal, God doesn't give a whole list of rules. He just bases it on taking humans at their word that they're going to follow him. I think that's a beautiful ideal that we can try to live up to even today. Now, the end of this verse literally reads, From every tree of the garden, to eat you will eat. Both this and thou shalt surely die in the next verse utilize a uniquely emphatic aspect of Hebrew grammar that's called an infinitive absolute. It's when the same verb is put back to back in only slightly different forms. So it's like a way of intensifying the verb. So whenever you see something like surely or here in this verse freely right before the verb, it's in the Old Testament or the Tanakh, it's probably an infinitive absolute. It's probably an intensive form. So here, like in this example of eating, you will eat or to eat, you will eat. And when you have in the next verse, it's literally dying, you will die. Often translated, you will surely die. Or I like how Robert Alter translated it, doomed to die. Now let's talk for a second about the plants that are mentioned here, because God says that the humans are able to eat of all of the plants of the garden, except for the tree of discerning good and not good. Normally in ancient Near Eastern literature, the plants in a garden would be considered food for the gods. Humans weren't supposed to eat it. They might be tending the garden, but the food within the garden was intended solely for the gods. And yet here in the biblical story, it is God who has provided this food for his images. I think that's a nice little flip on what would have been a standard assumption in their 
their culture. That here, rather than the humans having to provide for God, it is God who gives graciously and freely to the humans. Now, I want to focus in on God's words of, for in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die, or dying you will die, you will be doomed to die. Notice that God never says he will kill the humans if they eat from the tree. He just says that they'll die. He's not threatening them with punishment. He's warning them about consequences. It's like if we were out walking along a trail in the woods and I said, hey, eat that mushroom and you'll die. Now, I'm not threatening to kill you. I'm just warning you that your human form can't handle ingesting the mushroom. I think that's what's going on here. We tend to read in ideas of an angry, vengeful God, but the first death in the Bible is not someone that God kills. It comes in chapter 4 when a human kills his own brother because he chose to define what is good and not good on his own terms. I draw attention to this because too often people view God, and especially the portrayal of God in the Old Testament, as being very angry, very vengeful, very just quick to fly off the handle and kill whoever has ticked him off a little too much that day. But I don't think that's the picture that the Bible actually gives. Sure, you can cherry-pick some verses and make him seem quite violent and aggressive, but most of the time, if we actually look at what the Bible is saying, God is not threatening people with death just because they choose a different way than his. I think we're meant to take statements like this quite literally. When he says, if you eat from this tree, you're going to die, He's not threatening them, he's just warning them that the tree was basically like poison to them. I've touched on this a little bit before with the analogy of being in space or touring a nuclear power plant. Those things are not in and of themselves bad, but our human form cannot exist in those dangerous spaces without some sort of a buffer substance. And if somebody warns us against going into space without a spacesuit or going into a nuclear reactor without proper protection, you're not going to be mad at that person and think they're threatening you. You're going to understand that they are just telling you your physical human form cannot exist in those conditions. And I think there was something about this tree of discerning good and not good that was actually fatal to humans if they ate from it. See, defining good and not good is the role of a god. If a human takes on that responsibility, it's too much for their mortal frame to support. I think we even see this in ourselves today. When you worry about things that are outside of your control, you start to feel it in your body. Maybe it's in the form of a stomach ache or a headache, or acid reflux, or, or what have you. But there is something about that internal mental process that actually affects you physically. And I think it might be because worrying is you're trying to keep control of circumstances that are actually outside of your control. The only type of being who can control circumstances is a god, and you aren't one. Human bodies aren't intended to contain that level of godlike responsibility. So worrying over something that you are not in control of is essentially the same thing as eating from the tree of discerning good and not good. You're taking on the role of a god and ingesting fruit, if you will, that will kill anyone who isn't a god. Because when someone asks you if you're a god, the right answer is actually no. Sorry, Zidamore. Now that leads us to everybody's favorite question. What actually was the fruit from the tree? I can absolutely definitively say that we will never know. I am pretty confident it was not a normal fruit of any kind, but rather a specific, one-of-a-kind, maybe even supernatural fruit. It was definitely not an apple, or likely probably not even any kind of fruit that still exists today. There's a famous medieval French rabbi who is often referred to as Rashi. It's a shortened form of Ravi Shlomo Yitzaki. And he supposedly said that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, don't get hung up on what kind of fruit tree it was. It was probably its own thing. The Bible never specifically says that this was an apple. 
That comes from later tradition, and once you get into medieval times, it actually creates the idea of an Adam's apple. The tradition would say that Adam and Eve ate from an apple, and part of it got stuck in Adam's throat when he was eating it, and so that's why guys have the little thing right there on the neck, little Adam's apple. But that's not Bible. There is no indication in the text of what kind of tree this was. And even if for some reason it was a normal fruit, that really wouldn't have any significance today. You know, let's say it was an apple. That doesn't mean that every apple tree is part of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or that apples somehow give you an understanding that you didn't have before. This is about a one-of-a-kind, unique tree. So I really tend to think that this was probably its own one-of-a-kind fruit as well. Now, before we move into the next verse, we have to address a question that I've never really heard anyone else comment on, but it strikes me as important. We tend to imagine the garden as being this perfect paradise where no bad thing could ever exist. But God warns the humans that eating from that particular tree will lead to death. So that has to mean that the human had some sort of understanding of the danger of death. If death meant nothing to him, God wouldn't have mentioned it. So he had to have some concept of that. Now, perhaps God explained it to him. Maybe when the human was created, he just had certain information that was already uploaded into his brain. He just understood from the very beginning. Or perhaps he had already witnessed some form of death. Perhaps he had seen animals die. Now, I know that's an uncomfortable thought for some people, based mainly on some things that Paul says later on, but there are some Christians who would take a view of Genesis that meshes the text with an evolutionary perspective. Now, we haven't touched on this too much yet, so I want to take a minute and address this. It is one of the main arguments that tends to crop up in a discussion of Genesis, so I definitely can't do it justice here in just a few minutes, but it is worth bringing to the forefront. Some Christians look at the book of Genesis and try to construct a very specific timeline of human history, and they'll try to count the years of the genealogies throughout the Bible and get to a date for the beginning of time. And a lot of times it ends up being somewhere between six and 10,000 years. This is a whole other episode for another day, but biblical genealogies are not the easiest thing in the world to read through. In fact, it's usually once you hit them that the average person decides to second guess their read through the Bible in a year plan. But since ancient cultures use different calendars, it's not always easy to reconstruct a timeline. But if you're going off of the genealogies alone, you usually end up somewhere around six to 10,000 years. Probably the most famous instance of someone trying to do this was Archbishop Usher. If you have a Schofield reference Bible, you more than likely have dates or at least years somewhere there in on the page of an estimate of when in history the events of that particular chapter of the Bible took place. A lot of people find those helpful, but that is still a very fallible human's attempt to understand history. In fact, Archbishop Usher went a little too far in his estimates to the point that he actually thought that he could tell you the exact time of creation, like the exact hour in which day it happened. His timeline, his chronology, is something that we should take with a grain of salt. But the general range of six to 10,000 years is a pretty common belief for many Christians. However, there are also many Christians who accept prevailing theories that the earth is millions or even billions of years old. And what ends up happening many times is these two camps fight with each other, with those on the six to 10,000 year side saying that the other camp does not take the Bible seriously, and with those in the older earth side claiming that the young earth people just don't understand but I want to be able to try to step in the middle of all of that and ask for a ceasefire and just a little bit of charity to assume that the other side 
whichever side you may find yourself on, assume that the other side does actually take the Bible seriously. Because good Christians are on both sides of this issue. And I am majorly oversimplifying here. There are several nuances to both views, and there's stuff in between and on either extreme. But we have to remember, first and foremost, that the Bible is not a science textbook. It is not trying to tell us the one way to view the world from a scientific perspective. The Bible is a story, and it's working within the cultural expectations and understandings of ancient Israel. So if you take an evolutionary perspective, you have to read that into the Bible. That's not necessarily the way that the ancients would have been reading the text. If you are taking a young earth creationist view, you have to read that into the Bible, because that is also not the way that the ancients would have been coming to this text. They weren't trying to answer the question of how old is the earth. They were trying to address why we are the way that we are. Why do we believe the things that we believe? So whatever perspective you take is a lens that you are bringing to the Bible. And if we can remember that, it can help us to be a little more charitable to the other side, because they are not then a bunch of hicks who are stuck in an old way of viewing the Bible, or a bunch of liberal God deniers. They are just Christians trying to make the most sense of this ancient text with the views that we have. Now, I'm going to assume that most people listening to this are probably relatively familiar with the young earth creationist perspective. That has tended to be pretty dominant in Christianity for a while. If you are not familiar, I'd say probably the most famous proponents of this would be Ken Ham and Answers in Genesis. There's also a couple other creation science groups, but by far this has gotten the most attention. But really, as long as the theory of evolution has been around, you have had Christians who have seen that as a legitimate theory and in harmony with the biblical text. And I do believe that there are ways that you can read Genesis faithfully, consistently, and have an evolutionary perspective. I don't think that the Bible is trying to present one view over the other, or privileges one view over the other. I think both are legitimate lenses that you can view the text with. And like I said before, I'm not going to be able to sell that debate here. But there are some things in the text that could lead you toward an evolutionary perspective. For example, like we mentioned in our discussion on verse 1, we are not told where water comes from. The chapter never says that God created water. It's just assumed to be pre-existent. So you have something that exists before God begins his creative work here. Another big issue that comes up is in chapter 4, after Cain kills his brother Abel, spoiler alert there, but after Cain kills Abel, he says that he's afraid that anyone who finds him will try to kill him. And that's a little bit of a problem when Cain and Abel are the only two recorded children of Adam and Eve up until that point. We'll get to that more when we get into chapter 4, but there is a position that some people take that says that there were ancestors of the human race existent already at this point of when our biblical story happens, and God specifically created Adam and Eve to be the first fully human people. This would be where humans and animals break in the evolutionary time period. You know, people talk about trying to find a missing link. Well, this is kind of why you might not have that right there because God takes specifically these two people that he has made, Adam and Eve, and begins the human race in the garden. But then there would be other primitive human species that were existing outside of the garden. That's just a little introduction to the idea. Again, I'm not trying to privilege one view over the other here, but I like to introduce that at this point in the story because I know that a lot of people have never heard that before, and several people struggle with Christianity as a whole or believing the Bible as a whole simply because they think that Genesis has to be viewed through the lens of a 6,000-year-old earth with 24-hour days of creation. And that is one way to view the text, but it is not the only way to view the text and still take it seriously. You can be a Christian who believes in God 
God, believes in Jesus, believes in the authority of Scripture, and still believes in evolution as well. We have to remember that the gospel is defined as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, not what you believe about Genesis, not whether you think the earth is young or old. So if this has never been an issue for you, great, I'm not trying to make it one, but I know that there are several people who have found difficulties with accepting common views of this passage. And for those people, I want to let you know, you are not alone. And this does not mean that if you struggle to accept a 6,000-year-old earth, you have to consider yourself no longer a Christian. And we'll continue to talk about this more in future episodes for sure. I just want to give a little bit of an introduction to that here, since we are talking about the human's understanding of death and how maybe he would have actually had a little bit of an understanding of that if there were primitive humans up until this point that had experienced death. But the creation, evolution, old earth, young earth arguments aside, even in this ideal garden, I think you have to consider the possibility that animals would have died. Because if animals were immortal, the earth would have filled up really quickly. That's one thing to talk about. Maybe humans would have been immortal and maybe they just you know, wouldn't have had that many kids. But the animals would have filled the earth up really fast. So I think we have to consider the fact that there could have been death even before the fall. Now, that's uncomfortable for a lot of people, but it is worth considering. And yes, I know that Paul says sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men because all have sinned. But we have to realize what he's talking about there is humanity. So perhaps animals could have died, but not humans before the fall. However you want to look at this, ultimately, it's just conjecture because the way the story takes place, I think we're led to believe that the humans didn't spend that much time in the garden before they decided to eat from the tree. Okay, how are we doing? I know that's a lot, but remember, in this healing space that we're trying to provide in the podcast, we're not necessarily looking to find what is the one right way to view the Bible. We are looking at multiple perspectives so that we can learn from each other and be able to foster community, even with people that we don't necessarily agree with. One more note we have to address before we leave this conversation regarding death. You have to ask, what exactly is this death? Because Adam and Eve didn't physically drop dead after eating the fruit. So what kind of death was God referring to here? A lot of people look at it and say it was death in the sense that now they're mortal. So in other words, up until this point, they were immortal. When they eat from the tree, their immortality is what died. It started a countdown to their death. The problem with that is it seems like the text is suggesting the tree of life is what provided immortality. Because when they do eat from the tree of knowing good and not good, God very specifically cuts them off from the tree of life in order that they would not be able to live forever. So some people have looked at that and said that humans have never been immortal. It was just access to the tree of life that would have allowed them to live on. And how exactly that worked, we don't know. Maybe you needed to eat from the tree of life once a week, once a month, once a year, who knows, maybe once every hundred or thousand years. But somehow it extended the human's life cycle. Uh, that is a possibility. I don't think it's something we can say for certainty, but it does seem that the text leans that way. So that still doesn't really answer what death meant here. Some people have suggested perhaps it was a relational death, in the sense that the pure intimacy that they had with each other and with God was now broken. And that's possible. Personally, I lean toward the idea that Adam and Eve were literally supposed to die that day that eating from that tree really would have immediately killed them. But God was merciful to them and actually lightened the sentence. So I think that we're supposed to take God's words literally here. In the day that you eat from it, you are going to die. That was the sentence. But God did something there to prevent that from happening, where he pushed it off to a later date, giving them opportunities to still live out life. Now, I don't know that you can prove that from the Bible, but it does seem consistent with God's character. 
All right, I know I said that was our last note on death, but I, I think I should add one more in here. There is a less popular, but I think it's still a very notable view, that the creation story is actually a commentary on the later exile that the Jews experience. Once you get to the books of the prophets, they speak of exile from the land as a form of death. And surely enough, the consequence that Adam and Eve's failure has is not physical death, but exile from the land. So several people have found analogies within Genesis to the time of the monarchy and eventually the exile and return. And I think that's a view that's growing in popularity a little bit, thanks to the work of people like Pete Enns. It's definitely worth keeping in the back of your mind when reading Genesis. Now, we finally made it to verse 18. So here we go. Yahweh God said, It is not good for the human to be alone. I will make him a helpmeet. And so out of the ground, Yahweh God forms every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brings them to the human to see what he would call them. And whatever the human called every living creature, that was its name. And the human gave names to all the cattle, all the beasts of the field, and to the fowls of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for the human, there was not found a helpmeet for him. And Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall on the human, and he slept. And he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh thereof. And the rib which Yahweh God had taken from the human made he a woman, and brought her to the human." I'm going to pause there because we have quite a bit to discuss. Through all of chapter one, we heard over and over again that God saw his creation as good and eventually very good. So this is the first time that we hear him say that something is not good. It is not good for the human to be alone. Note, though, that God never says the human situation is bad. He says it's not good. It's not anti-tov. It's just not tov. Remember, tov is the Hebrew word for good. So it's not anti-good. It's not bad. It's just not fully good. See, I make a point of this because a lot of people have looked at these few verses here at the end of chapter 2 and used them in ways that have hurt a lot of people. Just like we talked about before with God's blessing on humanity to be fruitful and multiply, how that was not a command to have as many children as possible. But a lot of Christians have viewed that in ways that haven't been the most helpful. We run into the same thing here, where people have looked at this and have assumed that the Bible is trying to say that everyone should be married and that men need women to keep them in line. It is not good for the man to be alone. But that's not what this verse is saying at all. See, singleness isn't evil. A lot of Christian circles rush young people into marriage. And especially if you were in a Christian college, the the culture that is often on campus just pushes young people into relationships that they're not ready for. And it kind of stems from bad readings of both this verse and the verse about having children. It's pushing people into marriage because, oh, this is such a good thing. And then you're supposed to have kids. Well, get married as soon as you can so you can have as many kids as possible. That doesn't exactly lead to the best types of marriages. And despite what Jerry Maguire thought, relationships do not complete a person or make them more human. Marriage does not make a person more of a person. Every human being on their own, simply by virtue of being human, is good and complete as a person. No one, guy or girl, needs to be married in order to please God. Now, we benefit from and even need the companionship of other humans to thrive, but no one needs another person in order to make themselves a full person. That's a lie that leaves a lot of people unsatisfied in pursuing relationships that they may not be ready for. In this particular instance, in this story, this human did need a partner. Because if he didn't have one, humanity couldn't continue. But that doesn't mean that all humans need spouses. All humans need companionship, but not everyone needs a spouse. Singleness is not evil. And remember that this is still the word for human. 
I know a lot of translations say man, but this is the human. So it's not saying that men need women to keep them in line. Oh, that guy just needs to get a wife so he'll calm down. No, no, no. It means that all humans need other humans. It is not good for the human to be alone. It never says it is not good for the man not to be married. It doesn't say it's not good for a human to be single. It says it's not good for a human to be alone. That means that we need each other. We need partners in life, be they spouses or best friends. Now, if I can quit preaching and go to meddling here for a second, let's not forget that the human had God and a garden paradise in which to live. And yet God said it still wasn't enough. The human needed another human to interact with. So apparently, all those times you hear Christians assure one another, well, if you have God, you have everything you need. Well, I hate to tell you this, but God doesn't agree with that statement. He himself said it's not good for the human to be alone. The human wasn't alone. He had God. And yet God himself said, that's not enough. He needs another human to be there with him. We have to be careful the things that we say, especially to people who are hurting. If it's pithy and short enough to be an Instagram post or cross-stitched on a pillow, it's probably not good theology. Just a thought. There's an ancient Jewish commentary called the Mishnah, and regarding this verse it asks, Why was the human being created alone? To teach you that every person must say, For me the world was created. This world, as well as all of the spiritual realms leading to it, was created for each and every person individually. As Maimonides, a popular medieval Jewish philosopher, taught, a person should always view himself and the entire world as if it is exactly balanced. If he does one mitzvah, one commandment, he is meritorious, for he has weighed himself and the entire world to the side of merit, and he has caused for himself and for all salvation and redemption, end quote. I know that's not exactly a traditional Christian view of this passage, but I think there's a, a lot to ponder there. And now it's time for Rants with Colin, the part of the episode where Colin comes out and rants about something. I'll try to keep it relatively brief, but there is something about this verse that gets me fired up, and it's when I hear preachers talk about a helpmeet. See, the issue is that helpmeet is not a word. If you look at the phrasing of the text, it's actually two words, helpmeet. In Hebrew, it's Ezer Konegdo. Ezer means helper, and Konegdo is appropriate for. In early modern English, the time of the King James, they used the word meet, M-E-E-T, as a way of saying that something was appropriate or fitting or good or corresponding to. It's like saying, it is meet for us to gather here today. So this phrasing is saying that the human needed a helper who was appropriate, fitting, corresponding to them. This is not a sidekick. A lot of times this verse is used to say that a woman is supposed to just be basically the servant who waits hand and foot on her husband. But that's not the idea of this word at all. Acer, that word for help, has so much more to it than you get from the English idea of help. In fact, most of the time that that word shows up in scripture, it's used of God being a help to his people. He is called their Acer. When we use the English word help today, we're usually implying that someone else is doing the main work. I'm just there to assist. I'm the one helping. But the Hebrew word is closer to an equal partner, or even someone without whom you would not be able to do your job. So the verse does not read, there was not found a helpmeet for Adam, but rather there was no partner appropriate for him. So right off the bat, we should not be looking for this woman to be subservient to the human, second to him. This is going to be someone who is completely on par with him in every way, someone who is his equal, not just in value, but also in function. 
And some have suggested that the natural progression of verses 18 and 19 implies that God was actually testing out different partners, different etzer, for the human. So as the animals walk by, the human is supposed to be looking for a partner among the animals. And then when he doesn't find one, he would decide to partner with the newly formed female human that God is going to create. I have to admit, when I first came across this view, I thought it was really weird. But it's actually a very old tradition, and one that seems to fit with the flow of the narrative. The more I read this, the more I actually see signs that are pointing to this in the text. And again, if you pick up the theistic evolution perspective that we've discussed, I think that this would basically be the pivot point for Homo sapiens, where humans are no longer compatible with animals. But putting that aside, can you think of any other time in the biblical story where animals come up to a human because God sent them to him? Well, the next time it happens is with Noah. There, we're specifically told it was one male and one female from each of the clean animals. So I think we're supposed to read these two stories in parallel, and it might even imply that God was bringing pairs of animals to Adam, to the human, to show his need for a companion. And that concept becomes really important in the next chapter. The human passes up all of these animals for his partner in favor of the late comer, the second human that is made. I will point out as well yet another difference between this account and the one in chapter one. Chapter one, the animals were spoken into existence, but here God is forming them in the same fashion that he did the human. The same word that is used of God stooping down and creating the human from the clay is the same word that is used here in verse 19 to say that he formed every beast of the field. And here as well, humanity is created first and then the animals are created. So that's just another example of how the two creation stories differ, not because they're contradicting one another, but because they're telling two separate versions of this narrative to give you two different perspectives on creation. Now, when God parades these animals before the human, the text says it is specifically for the human to name them. Naming was really significant in the ancient Near East. It was a way of assigning purpose and identity to a person, a place, or even a thing. It could also be a way of establishing ownership. Whatever significance you choose to focus on there, the main point is that humanity is now doing what God alone did in chapter 1. Throughout chapter 1, God was the one who did all of the naming. He named light, darkness, the firmament, the dry land, and the water. And now he's deputized humanity to do the same moving forward. So the animals all come before the human. He names them, and he doesn't find a partner amongst all of them. Let me note as well that in his naming of them, that probably doesn't mean that he was giving them all names like you would give to your favorite pet. He wasn't calling that dog Fido and that one Rover. No. It also would not have been his naming every breed. Uh, of dog or cat or giraffe or you know, whatever you would have. It would more so just be his giving names for the overarching species of animal. So when he doesn't find a partner amongst all the animals, Yahweh God causes a deep sleep to fall on him, and he slept, and he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which Yahweh God took from the man, he made a woman and brought her to him. This begins a pattern in the Tanakh of God's putting key characters to sleep at pivotal moments in their stories. And then when they're in that dream state, God often does something for them or reveals new information to them that they would not otherwise have been able to do or know by themselves. Some of the occurrences, interestingly enough, even lead to dreams that place the human back in the garden or in a garden-like place. That's worth keeping an eye out for as you read through other passages. Now let's talk about the rib. The text literally reads that God took one from his side. Now, nowhere else in scripture does this word imply ribs. 
It's actually a construction term referring to the side of something. It's like where you have a wall, like you have four walls of, of a room. That is one of the sides. It's that word here. The word does not mean rib. Nowhere else is it translated rib. In no other context could it possibly even mean rib. It just means the side of a building. And in fact, it's almost always used for the side of a sacred building in scripture, namely the temple. The word is also frequently used in Noah's building of the ark. So, despite very common thought, the woman was not created from Adam's rib bone, but from a half of him. The text is actually suggesting that God split the human into two halves, and then taking one of those halves, he made a whole new person and reformed both of them. So this was God splitting the Adam. I'm sorry, I have to put that in there. It's just, you, <laughs> you have to bring that up. Anyway, moving on. This is why I don't get paid to tell jokes. Over time, people have assumed that this was God's taking out one rib from the human. In fact, there are even some people who have read this and thought that men in general, even today, had one fewer rib than women do. Not only is that not scientifically accurate, it's also not theologically accurate. The text is saying that God split the human in half and took one of his sides and made another human. And I think this is very clear in the text if we would have just taken the time to pause and read what the human says when he first sees this woman. He says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. If God had just taken out a rib, he would have only said bone of my bones. But he also says flesh of my flesh. And the construction metaphor continues with how God is said to create the woman. The verse literally reads in verse 22, from the side which Yahweh God had taken from the human, he built a woman. And that may seem like an odd term for creating the woman, but it matches the construction term side that is used a verse earlier. And so from a side of the human, God builds a female human. Now, I know this is going to be really hard, but I'm going to fight the temptation to call her Eve because she is actually not called Eve until the end of chapter three when they have already eaten from the tree. Up until then, her name is Isha. Isha is the Hebrew word for woman. That's all she's called. In Hebrew, one of the words for a male is ish. And so there's a Hebrew suffix that you can add to the word to mean from or out of. In certain circumstances, it can mean other things as well. But that suffix is ah. So if you have ish, a man, and you add ah to it, you have from man, or we would say woman. It's actually very similar to how the English terms of man and woman work. Woman was originally pronounced withman, with meaning female and man meaning human. So you had female human. Now, as weird as this whole idea of God splitting the human in half instead of just taking out a rib is, I think there's actually some significance to that view. Because in a culture where the firstborn status mattered, the man's being created first could have led some people to infer that men are superior to women, or even entitled to a better role or blessing from God. But by creating one human and blessing that human while he was still one, and then only after the blessing, God splits that same human in two, that means that the rights and responsibilities given to the man are the same for the woman. There is no hierarchy of male and female in God's economy. They are completely equal. Verse 23 is the human's response to the new arrival of this woman. And it's really a poem that he speaks. Certain translations of the Bible may indent this verse, actually. And, and I really like when versions do that because it helps to show you that this is poetry. This is to be read a little bit differently than the text around it. And poetry shows up a surprising number of times in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible. And it's usually intended to break up a narrative at a very important point in the story. It slows you down, and it makes you think. 
just like poetry does for us today. Someone can write hundreds of pages in a book and give you something to think about. And then another person can write just four, maybe five or ten lines on a piece of paper and give you just as much to think about as the person who wrote hundreds of pages. That's what poetry does. It forces you to slow down and think about the meaning of what's being said. So by inserting poetry at key points in a story, the authors are trying to slow you down and get you to think about the importance of what's happening here. It is interesting that this is now the first recorded speech from a human. This is not to say that the human didn't speak before that. I think it's pretty obvious he did since he named the animals. But this is the first recorded one because now he has someone to talk with. And his poem doesn't really transfer over the easiest into English. In fact, Young's literal translation of the Bible is the only version I've found to give the full nuance of the Hebrew here. So he translated it as, And the man saith, This is the proper step, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. For this it is called woman, for from a man hath this been taken. See, the phrase that's often translated, This is now bone of my bones, is literally, This time, bone of my bones. This is really what convinced me that God's parading the animals before the human was for the purpose of his finding a mate. And only after seeing all of the animals paired up and incompatible with him, the human was ready to accept a mate corresponding to him. So he burst out excitedly, Finally, someone who looks like me, this time, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. His poem is very concise. It actually begins and ends with the exact same word in Hebrew. That doesn't translate over well into English, but the word this is the first and last word of his poem. It's really cool how that works. Now, in verse 24, the narrator steps back in and starts speaking. This is no longer the human speech. I think some people, especially if you're reading a version that doesn't indent the human speech in verse 23, they can think that this is a continuation of what he's saying. But I really don't think that he would have had a category for talking about marriage. He says, for this cause, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. If these were the first two humans, I really don't think that he would have said that. Like, he didn't have a mother and father. He wouldn't have known that. But e either way, the grammar of the passage suggests that this is the narrator stepping in and making his own commentary on what's happening. I do find this emphasis on leaving unusual. It would have been very contrary to the later Jewish concept of a man building onto his father's house. In the ancient Near Eastern culture of the Bible, most of the time when a young couple was going to get married, the young man would go to the girl and say, we're going to get married, start preparing. He wouldn't give her a day, a time, it would just be, I'm going to start building a place for us to live, get your stuff ready because I'm going to come and get you and we're going to get married. So he goes back to his parents' house, and he actually builds an addition onto his parents' house in order for them to live. So back in Bible times, it was basically an in-law suite, but the younger couple was the in-laws. The parents stayed in their own house, and the son just built onto his parents' house. And then as soon as he was done, he would go get his bride, and they would get married. Now, over time, people started realizing that the women didn't like that very much. They liked a little bit of time to prep for their wedding. So oftentimes, the groom-to-be would send a friend ahead a little bit just to warn the bride-to-be that he was getting close to finishing the addition on the house. Obviously, that's very different than our culture today. A lot of Eastern cultures, even in modern times, focus much more on keeping families together across generations. We live in a very individualistic society where in the ancient Near East, you didn't just leave home after college and go to a totally different city or a totally different state. You stayed with your family. But even today, I think this idea of leaving that the narrator is presenting 
is a little bit countercultural. We may not build onto our parents' houses and continue to live in them most of the time, but even still, a significant portion of marriage problems happen when the couple does not have healthy boundaries with both sets of parents. It's good to determine those lines early. Once you're on your own as an adult, you are answerable to God alone, not to your parents, and not to your in-laws or anyone else in your family. And that goes for both men and women. There is a time to leave behind the way that life used to be. That doesn't mean be rude or completely cut off your family. But when you leave the house, you are starting a new family, even if it is just you or you and your significant other. And so the narrator is trying to say here, there comes a time to leave and be your own family. Now, ideally, you'll be able to coexist with family on both sides. But unfortunately, that doesn't happen for a lot of people. So I find it very progressive and even modern for this ancient narrator to acknowledge the need for boundaries in a relationship. Now, if I can give a little bit of a different perspective on this, some have looked at that word for leave and noticed that it's actually very forceful. How it's used in other passages in the Bible is not usually a positive. So some have suggested that verse 24 is not a happy proof text for a wedding, but actually a warning from the time of the exile. Most scholars believe that Genesis, along with the rest of the Tanakh, was edited together around the time of the exile. So then, remembering that Genesis can be viewed through the lens of exile, some believe the editor was commenting on the strange tendency that young people have to leave everything behind for love, whether the family views it as good or not. It would have been a very prevalent issue in the post-exile Israel, where in those 70 years, many Israelites had married foreigners, and people like Nehemiah and Ezra were taking issue with it. So then this verse would be saying, this is why a man abandons his heritage and latches on to someone else. This is why young men leave their parents and their faith and their community and go after love instead. Because at the very beginning, we were one flesh. There is something innate in us where we long to be united intimately with another human being again. People are attracted to each other like magnets because they were originally one being in the first place. So from this point of view, the verse is not a blessing on a traditional marriage where, where the guy takes the girl and they go off and get married. Rather, it would actually be a philosophical apologetic about intermarrying with foreign pagan women. I'm not sure if that's the case. I think it's an interesting theory, but I can definitely say that the verse is not teaching when a young man turns 18, he should leave the house and pay rent and get married. They just, they didn't do that in an ancient culture. In fact, most of the time, like we mentioned, the young couple moved in with the parents. But a lot of times, young Israelites were abandoning their parents' religion in order to marry foreigners. So I think it does make sense that perhaps a later editor was writing this in as an explanation for why so many of the young people were going off and doing their own thing. Now, all that being said, I have heard preachers many times try to make too much out of this verse, so I don't want to do that. We have to acknowledge that this verse is not a command. It's just a statement of fact about what usually happens in the circle of life. And the translator's bias shows when they say shall leave instead of will leave. I think the nuance of the verb is that of a future, not an imperative. So in other words, it shouldn't read, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, but rather just will. That's the idea that shall had in the early modern English of the King James time. So it just kind of stuck, even though the meaning changed. So the author is not commanding this. It's not saying, therefore, you should leave your parents and get married, or therefore, you must leave your parents and get married. It's saying, therefore, young people will leave and get married. Amusingly enough, cleave is probably not the best English word to use now, as it has actually come to mean to split from. 
when originally it meant to join. So this is yet another Hebrew construction word, specifically that you would use for two adjoining walls that meet on an edge. So it fits all of the construction language that we have had of Isha so far. I also find it interesting, if we're looking at the Bible as a whole, that the human story begins and ends with a wedding celebration. We have that here at the very beginning in Genesis, and again, the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation. Verse 25 casts a little bit of a dark shadow over the rest of the story, because it says they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. The human had just emphasized their oneness, the unity of the two of them. Yet here, they're described as two again. So I think we're supposed to be reading this a little uncomfortable with the idea of, weren't they just reunited as one, and now they're being described as two, the man and his wife? I think it's just a little bit of foreshadowing that something bad is about to happen, where they work not as a unit, but as individuals, independent of each other. The word often translated, and were not ashamed, is a single reflexive Hebrew verb. It literally reads, they were not putting themselves to shame or they were not acting shamefully. We tend to think of being naked and ashamed as going together, but the terms actually aren't synonymous. In fact, I'd say they're antagonistic to each other in God's ideal of the world. In an appropriate setting, being naked is not something that should bring about shame in a healthy person. But what happens with many people, Christians especially, is that they feel ashamed of their naked bodies even in completely appropriate settings. This happens a lot in marriages where within a completely traditional healthy marriage, the man and the woman still sometimes feel ashamed to be completely naked together. And that's not the way that God intended it. That's not how he had it. I think it's actually a product of our fallen state that we associate being naked with being ashamed. Now, I am not saying that we should all go start nudist colonies, but it is interesting that standards of nakedness differ between cultures and even between times in the same culture. In settings where it is culturally appropriate, I think that nudity is not something that Christians should be afraid of or ashamed of. I know some people who, even looking at art, they would shy away from nudity. But within healthy cultural norms and boundaries, a person should not feel ashamed of their own naked body. It is often those who are most ashamed of their own naked physical bodies who struggle the most with their own emotional self-image. I'm actually going to touch on this some more once we get to the actual moment when the humans eat from the tree, because I think that this nakedness is about more than just physical nudity. I think it's talking about vulnerability as a whole, not just physical, but also emotional. So by having these first two humans described as naked and not ashamed, I think the author is saying that at our best, we are comfortable enough with other people to fully be ourselves to be emotionally laid bare and know and be known fully as images of God. That's a lot easier said than done, but I think it is a beautiful ideal for us to strive toward in our relationships. That finishes out chapter two for us. Now, we have discussed a lot in just a few episodes here, so I think this is a good time to remind you that you can submit questions to us. Go on our website, thebibleuncut.com, and at the bottom of the homepage, we have a section where you can type out your questions. You can also email them directly to ccon at thebibleuncut.com. That's C-C-O-N-N at thebibleuncut, all one word, dot com. I can't promise that we will always respond to all of them, but we will read them. We will do our best to get back to as many as we can, and we will be able to feature certain questions in our future question and response sessions that we will have in our Patreon group. So I'd encourage you to look into joining that. It's only $5 a month. Uh, it helps to support the work that we're doing here 
and it also gives you access to all kinds of content that we have on that website. Next week, we will begin Chapter 3 and spend a good bit of time talking about the serpent. What kind of creature was he? Why was he there? What was he even trying to accomplish in tricking the humans? Why did he go after the woman first? And where was the man in all of this? So that's going to be an awesome discussion. I cannot wait for it. That's by far some of my favorite material to teach. So until then, stay curious and keep asking questions about the uncut and unfiltered Bible. You've been listening to The Bible Uncut and Unfiltered. We hope we provided a healing place to discuss the questions you can't ask and the context you won't learn in church. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to share it with a friend. You can also rate and review on your podcast app to help other people find it. If you'd like to donate to keep our work going, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash thebibleuncut, where you'll get exclusive access to bonus content. You can also check out our website, thebibleuncut.com, for recommended resources and more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.